ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, you might not know the name Shane Brennan, but it's pretty likely you're one of the very many millions of people who've watched the TV shows he's written and produced. Shane Brennan was the executive producer of the TV series NCIS and the creator of its spin-off, NCIS Los Angeles, which takes us into the world of undercover special agents Sam Hanna and G. Callum. There's only one way this goes well for you, Salazar. How's that? You tell us where James Martinez is and we're gone. What makes you think I know him? You wouldn't be much of a leader if you didn't. I don't know you. I know a lot of cops. We're federal agents. You wouldn't want to know us. Bring it all back for you. But before these TV juggernauts, Shane Brennan was a scriptwriter here in Australia. And these days he's back living here and giving back to the industry via a million-dollar philanthropic fund for younger Australian writers. This week, the Australian Writers Guild has recognised his contribution, presenting him with the Richard Lane Award for Outstanding Service and Dedication. I spoke to Shane Brennan earlier. Thank you very much, Fran. And thanks so much for joining us here on Saturday Extra. Uh, Shane, you've received this homegrown award from the Australian Writers Guild, but you've had a very big global career yourself. What does this local recognition mean to you? Look, it's really important to me and it's important to the industry. Richard Lane started the Guild 62 years ago and the the award itself is it's kind of uh, it's passed down through through generations of writers and we need writers of experience to step up because inevitably a guild with the the changes in industry and the ebb and flow of television production and film production they can have moments where they almost fall apart and that's happened a number of times in our industry. And the Guild has managed to survive that by having, um, I guess, experienced writers jump in there when they need to and, and lend their support to the Guild. And so when the call came out to me, uh, you know, I didn't hesitate. I jumped straight in and, uh, and became president of the Guild during COVID. So it was a pretty tough four-year term that I had. Yeah. And I want to talk about the local industry with you in a while. But first, let's talk about your career, NCIS, one of the biggest crime franchises ever. How big was it and how big was it working on it? It was bigger than I ever imagined it would be. In fact, I joined the show as a, what they call a consulting producer. I was the number two on the show in 2005 and we were in season four and the show was struggling in the ratings, it was starting to decline, it had had its moment of glory, and we needed to revitalise it. And that particular season, uh, the showrunner, the creator of the show, Don Belisario, left the show, uh, and I took over. And at the same time, the show started to be repeated, and we started to gather a new audience, and suddenly the show took off, and it went from being a show of having 8 million viewers each night, it went up to 22 million. Now, I've sort of hear you being a bit modest in that. I'm sure it just didn't take off by itself. How did you consciously try and revitalise the franchise? Well, look, I took a, took a real storytelling point of view. The show was a very fast cut show, so it was edited at a very rapid pace. And I thought the audience couldn't follow the stories because the editing was too quick. And, in fact, I slowed the editing down and focused on the story and uh, each episode. In fact, at one point I asked one of the editors, how many cuts were there in, in an episode of NCIS 
before I took over, and he said about 1,200. So that's 1,200 cuts in a 43-minute drama. I'd reduced that down to 850. So it slowed the, slowed the show down, but it focused on the story. And I think the audience appreciated that. They could understand what was happening, and they started to fall in love with the characters. We introduced a lot more emotional um, backstory with the characters. And tell me about well. that. I mean, you stayed on the show for a very long time. What did you love about writing these characters, about, you know, writing this extremely popular show about federal agents? Well, what drew me into it really was the undercover aspect. Um, I had a great access to the the real NCIS in Washington. And I can remember going into a room and there were about a dozen undercover agents in there. And a couple of them were about to be posted. A few others had just come back from postings. And these were young men and women who were about to take on a new identity and go out into the real world uh, and try to catch bad guys. Many of them terrorists because this was, of course, during th that period of where the war on terror was at its height. Yeah, post 9-11. And I remember talking to these people and thinking at the time, these are the stories I want to tell. I want to explore what it's like to have to live a lie and get very close to people who you then had to betray. And so to me, that was always the hook for me as a writer. And I think the whole creation of NCIS Los Angeles, having a group of, of agents who went undercover who really had to get close to people, betray them and live right on the edge. That to me was the excitement and the challenge of writing that show. And just in case there is anyone hiding in a corner of Australia that doesn't know about NCIS, it stands for Naval Criminal Investigation Service. You created the next hook of it, which is NCIS LA. Did you do that out of a sort of, you know, with a view to the franchise expansion or was it some particular element that you wanted to get to? Well, I'll tell you a little quick story. I was running NCIS and the head of the studios um, said, have you got anything else you want to, you know, pitch, any other shows you want to make? And I said, yes, let's go. And, and I had a particular story I wanted to pitch to the network. And I was going into pitch to the network and we were sitting in the foyer with the head of the studio and an episode of NCIS was on in the foyer. And I said, just in passing, that was one of our best episodes last season. And he sort of glanced up at me and said, do you think we could do a spin-off? And I said, yes, I've got one. And he said, what, you've got a spin-off of NCIS? <laughs> I said, yes, I have. And we weren't there to pitch the spin-off of NCIS. We were there to pitch my other show. And I said that to him. I said, look, I, have, you know, I haven't prepared it. I don't want to pitch it today. And we went into the meeting and within about two minutes, they changed the subject from my story that I wanted to pitch, my show, to doing a spin-off of NCIS. And I said, look, I'll come back tomorrow and pitch it to you. And so I left that meeting, I went home, and I actually didn't have a spin-off to NCIS. I went home and created it from scratch in about six hours and went back in the next morning and pitched it to the studio and the network, and they loved it, and they bought it, and we made it, and the rest is history. That is quick thinking. What about your original show? Did you get to pitch that and make that ever? Oh, they sat there and nodded and loved it, but when you have a show like NCIS that has become a bit of a juggernaut and you start talking about a spin-off, everything else falls away. You, you become handcuffed to the success of that first show. So for me, it was very hard to get off that, <laughs> that treadmill, I guess, of, of making one, create, one big hit 
and then a second. Well, you certainly did have huge success. NCIS Los Angeles was watched live, live by more than 35 million viewers in the US every week. That is success right there. And yet you left that and you did come back to Australia. Why? Well, I went to the US in 2003 and it was a five-year plan and I stayed 14 years. Um, And as I said, it was hard to leave. And the thing, I guess, that struck me when I was started to have that success, I realised that a lot of people depended on me. Um, and by that, I mean the actors, the crew. There were, there were over 500 people working on those two shows. And if I was to have left earlier than I did, the potential for those shows to then fall apart and be cancelled was was quite great. And so it was about training people up to take over and for me to sort of slowly ease out. So that's why it took so long. And I was always determined to come back. People said, you know, what was it like to to live in Los Angeles? And I said, I didn't live there. I worked there. Mm. Uh, Catherine, my wife, stayed in Australia and she commuted back and forth and I commuted back and forth. And so it was always about me coming back to Australia. And when I got back, um, the industry that I'd left in 2003, nothing had changed. The, The writer's place in this industry was still really at the bottom of the ladder. And I experienced a totally different industry in the US where the writer was at the top of the ladder and writers had control of the things they created, which makes you know, a lot of sense, except not here. So I set about trying to change that and I set up a, a, a not-for-profit called Scripted Inc., which was designed to help writers and build their profile and give them the confidence and the experience and I guess some of the tricks of the trade that I'd learned. And has it had an impact? I read something from you that you said a few years ago now, maybe soon after you got back, and you said about the industry here, it hasn't ventured far out of Wandon Valley, which is obviously a reference to a country practice. Um, but has it changed now? I mean, we've got some very big global hits at the moment. Heartbreak High did very well overseas. The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart did well, very, very well uh, globally for Amazon Prime. Boy Swallows Universe at the moment, I think, is number two on Netflix in the US. They've all excelled. Can you see change? I can see change. And, and some of that has been because of the, the changes in the industry worldwide. Um, with the advent of streaming services, the way people watch television now or watch get, get entertained generally has totally changed. It used to be free-to-air, you know, the four channels that you watched and went to. Now you can access content through all sorts of different streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and all of the others. So there was a massive shift um, around 2015. To give you an example, we the Writers Guild in America went on strike in 2007 and the showrunners, who were all considered, um, I guess, managers by the, by the studios, there were 101 of us met to decide whether we'd go on strike. In 2015, there were 450 showrunners. So suddenly content was king. It exploded around the world because of the streaming services. And when I got back to Australia, that was starting to happen, but the writers were still at the bottom. So for me, it was about trying to take advantage of this need for content. And, you know, we're an English-speaking country. We have fantastic crews, fantastic actors, and 
you know, we needed to take advantage of that. And there, so that's that's why I set it up and that's what I was trying to achieve. There is some concern, though, with some in the industry here, I know, that with the impact of the global streaming services that you just were talking about, that, you know, our producers and our scriptwriters might start or might feel they need to start having an eye to audience overseas with the stories they tell or the way they tell them rather than just, you know, tell great and important Australian stories that are important here but might not resonate overseas. Is it is that something you, you've seen having an impact or you're concerned about? What concerns me is that blinkered thinking, to be honest. Um, you know, one of the things when I when I got to the States, I realised very quickly that it doesn't matter what the accent is, where does the setting is, what the geography is, the stories we tell are all the same. They are human stories. We all have it around the world. It doesn't matter what language we speak, where we live, we all re, uh, respond in the same emotional way to things that happen in our life. And for me, that's the key to, to opening up the world. You know, you mentioned Boy Swallows Universe, a very Australian story. It's being watched in the US. The audiences around the world have become much more sophisticated and willing to accept subtitles, funny accents, strange locations. In fact, they kind of flock to them because they are so different. That's the opportunity we have. And if we have, a, you know, those great Australian stories that we need to tell, let's tell them in a way that they're accessible to the rest of the world and help support the industry. Because if we only tell Australian stories that are only going to be watched by Australians, we will not have an industry in, in five years' time. It will disappear. We'll be flooded with um, shows from Scandinavia or, you know, Spain, France, Germany, the US, wherever. We need a homegrown industry that reaches out to the world and doesn't just supply to Australian viewers because there's simply not enough of us. Shane Brennan, thank you very much for joining me on Saturday Extra. Thank you, Fran. Shane Brennan, the winner of the Richard Lane Award for Outstanding Service and Dedication to the Australian Writers Guild. And if you haven't seen Boy Swallows Universe, I really recommend it. Trent Dalton's novel was a masterpiece and this TV show is pretty fabulous. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.